2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Laura Kelly, a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Karen Chenoweth, the author of the new book, Districts That Succeed, Breaking the Correlation Between Race, Poverty, and Achievement. Karen Chenoweth, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Karen, can you tell us a little about
1: yourself? Sure, I'm a longtime reporter and education writer. And in 2004, I began working at the Education Trust, a national, advoca- uh, national advocacy organization that um, uh, advocates for children of color and children from low income backgrounds. And uh, while there, I led their work finding and learning from schools and districts that are high performing or improving and serve large percentages of children of color and children from low-income backgrounds. Uh, While there, I wrote four books and co-authored a fifth, all published by Harvard Education Press, on what makes those schools and districts different from their less successful peers.
0: Great. So can you tell us the story of how you came to be interested in districts? How does this book build on your prior work looking at effective schools?
1: So it's a little bit of a story. So when I first started this line of work, it was what you could call the age of data. It was the beginning of the age of data. So Before No Child Left Behind required that all states administer assessments to every child from third through eighth grade and once in high school, it was really difficult to assess whether a school was high performing, low performing. It was really very difficult. Um, Richard Elmore, the researcher at Harvard, used to call, and I don't think he was unique, but he used to call schools the black boxes, right? I mean, it was just really difficult to know. You could... Visit schools and go from classroom to classroom, and you could kind of get an idea, but were the kids actually learning to read and do math? You you really didn't know. So, um, so when the school report cards were started being published, right around two thousand three, two thousand four, um, it was finally possible to identify schools that were doing really well by african-american children hispanic children children from low-income backgrounds um you know on a variety of metrics and so we started identifying those schools and i would visit them to try and figure out what they were doing and what i was really struck by i didn't know what they you know i didn't know what i would find out i i thought you know, maybe they're just test prep factories. I didn't know. And what I found was that they did everything right. They had warm, respectful school cultures. They didn't just teach reading and math. They taught science, history, the arts. They were always mindful of state testing, but they didn't worry too much about preparing for the tests. They focused on good instruction and let the test scores follow. And in other words, they did what we would hope, at least what I think most people would hope. I, And, you know, I had identified these schools through the test score data, but the test score data was a byproduct of good instruction, not a result of endless test prep. And so I, you know, after visiting many schools, I concluded that the reason they were so successful was really a function of how the school leaders had organized the work so the teachers could teach and students could learn. In other words, principles are really important and school organization is really important. But I was at this for a really long time, since 2004. And during that time, schools that I had profiled that were doing absolutely terrific work um, were a few years later. Some of them had tanked. Uh, some of them were still going strong and some of them had tanked. Mostly, they tank after their principal left to retire or take another job, and this bore in on me that you can fix schools all you want if the districts they reside in are dysfunctional. They won't stay fixed. Um, the superintendent will appoint a bad or just even mediocre principal and the school will fall apart. Highly functional schools are not perpetual motion machines. You can't simply put them in motion and they'll continue to be functional. So this made me interested in, some, in finding some highly functional districts to study what is it they do differently from their peers. And basically what I found was analogous to what I had found in schools. The reason they were so successful was a function of the way district leaders had organized the work so that principals could lead their schools successfully. Um, so that's why I got interested in districts because I, I decided they were really important. Um, and uh, uh, I was lucky because Sean Reardon at Stanford University at the Education Opportunity um, Education Opportunity Project, I think that's the formal name at Stanford University he had started identify he had started um really working on district data so i was able to use a national um scope to find uh to 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 use the um to identify districts through the numbers um uh the way i had with schools thank
0: you you claim in the introduction that there hasn't been that much research on effective school systems. Why do you suppose that is the case?
1: I think a a couple of things. Um, First, research on districts is hard to do. And by the way, I don't, uh, other people have been very kind and called my work research. I don't call it research because I'm not a trained researcher. I'm not a you know, I don't have a PhD. I'm not a trained person. I'm a trained reporter. So I use research. It's in the back of my head, but I am using the tools of journalism, not, re- not quantitative or even qualitative research. Um, but research on hard, districts is hard to do. One one superintendent I quote in districts that succeed says that school districts are like amoebas with lots of moving parts and, you know, it's hard to get your arms around districts. So it isn't easy. And second, um, researchers tend to like to isolate and gauge the effect of individual factors on a given phenomenon. So I mean, there is research on districts, for example, on the effect of teacher bonuses on teacher distribution within districts. So it's not that there's no research, but the research that exists tends to illuminate one single aspect of a district's functioning, as opposed to looking from a more global, you know, sort of, oh, this district seems to be doing really well. Uh, If you just look at the numbers, what are they doing? and then asking the, the people involved, what are you doing? And really listening to what they say. And what they say is complicated. It's, it's hard to isolate individual factors. So I, I think there's a number of reasons. The, there's a larger issue around education research, which I find very valuable. It's, it's hugely important, but it tends to fall into two buckets, correlational which gives us a sense of the big patterns of, uh, what's going on and, um, and really the, the isolation of individual factors or, um, or uh, study of individual programs or practices. And while they're both really important and valuable, neither helps us understand success. In fact, most of it helps us understand failure more than success. Um, and so it's uh, it tends to be rather discouraging, education research.
0: And in a sense, that's the work of your book is to address the shortcomings of those research traditions by going into districts and talking to people and getting, as you say, listening to them and getting that, qualitative overview of what is happening across the districts and trying to start describing case studies of what success can look like and the way it can look in different locations and different districts. So building on that theme, you write that successful districts organize themselves around student learning, which obviously, like immediately that was striking us like, well, of course they do. Um, but what does that mean? And why is it apparently so hard? It's really interesting that that's what a mark of a successful district does. And one would think that that is what all districts do, because that's ostensibly why they exist. Um, so what does it mean to organize yourself as a district around student learning? And why is it so hard?
1: Well, as a, as a parent and a uh... As a reporter, I noticed how many things get in the way of teaching and learning. Um, bus schedules, of course, are more important than pretty much anything else. Athletic schedules are permitted to interrupt instruction. Kids are pulled out from instruction for speech therapy, other interventions. In my state, the former governor uh, decreed that no school could start before Labor Day so that resorts would be able to keep high school kids working through the holiday weekend and families would go to the beach. Um this is all you know. Those are more important than teaching and learning. It takes enormous effort and leadership to organize school schedules around teaching and learning. Um, and by the way, all the principals I profiled and and uh, all the yeah all the principals I, I I profiled through, throughout the years used the master schedules in ways to maximize the amount of time teachers had for instruction and for collaboration. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I remember people, pe- I hope people are still reading The Teaching Gap, which was published in, I think, 1999 by James Hebert and James Stiegler. And they have this great story in there where they were watching videos of an American eighth grade math lesson with teachers from the U.S. and Japan. And the Japanese teachers were startled and asked what just happened. And they rewound the, you know, the Americans were all like, I didn't hear anything. They rewound the tape and there was a bus announcement over the the loudspeaker in the class. And the Japanese teachers were just indignant. Who would interrupt a math lesson with a routine announcement, they demanded. The Americans in the room hadn't even noticed. We permit an awful lot of... um, you know, interruption. Uh, Nick Ferroni, who I I follow on Twitter, he's a teacher. He did a wonderful little TikTok or, you know, something about all the interruptions. He's still experiencing, you know, uh, 24 years after the teaching gap uh, identified this as a real issue. Um, So we don't organize our schools around teaching and learning. I, I was in a district... I was in a this was a school meeting it was a 712 meeting uh 712 school and it was a principal who was trying to really rev up his teachers it was the last meeting before the day the first day of school and he was really trying to rev up the um teachers and really get them excited about teaching and learning and all that st- all the good stuff and he was required by his district and his state to do you know the bloodborne pathogen training the the i mean it was just endless what he w- the, what he was expected to do instead of really talking about teaching and learning uh, and that was before covid so um you know to to organize around teaching and learning really requires thinking deeply about what the require you know what is required for teaching and learning. And uh, I don't think we do that enough.
0: So a moment ago, when you were telling the story of this book, you referenced Sean Reardon's data and how that assisted you in identifying your districts. Can you say a little more about how you identified the successful districts in this book and then how you learned about what they were doing to succeed?
1: Sure. So so around 2017, I think, Sean Reardon started... um, Kind of releasing his data. And, and the New York Times had a scatter plot that they published. Um, and I spent a long time on the, that scatter plot. So you were able to kind of uh, move your cursor across uh, the little dots and see which district was which. And he had arrayed the districts on uh, the x axis. By socioeconomic status of the students, and he had it. This was a complicated thing. It wasn't just the free and reduced lunch. He used the community survey of the U.S. Census, so he really got some rich data. With some of the really small districts, I think you can be a little wary because, um, just how, just in terms of the the you know, a small number of responses could skew, uh, the, you know, for, for, for small districts. So, so you always have to keep data in context, but it's really rich data. And so he was able to put the districts on a scale of socioeconomic background of the students. And on the y-axis was uh, the academic achievement. And again, this is really careful, difficult work because the tests that you give in Alabama, the state tests given in Alabama aren't the same as the state tests given in Maryland and, or Arkansas or wherever. And so he, what he did was he equated all of them through the National Assessment of Educational Progress. So he compared Alabama to... Nape and then NAEP to Maryland, therefore by the transitive property, Alabama to Maryland. Again, this is a little tricky and you don't want to be absolute, you know, if there's a small difference between districts, you don't want to, you don't want to say, well, that district is better than this. You know, you don't want to do that, but it allows us, you know, it's a big correlational study and it allows us to see the big pattern, and the big pattern is that generally, as academic achievement uh, as as poverty increases, academic achievement tends to decrease. But there are two things about that. Even within an a, a, a socioeconomic status, there's a huge variation. Uh, if you if you just don't look at the t- tail ends of the distribution, if you just look at you know sort of not the real outliers on the, on the left and right, you can see four grade levels of difference between most socioeconomic statuses. So if, if we were just able to raise uh, students to the top of their socioeconomic status, we'd still have an equity problem in this country, but it wouldn't be the stomach churning mess that we have right now. Um, So, like that's one thing that it just jumps out at you from this scatter plot. The other thing is that there are outliers, and you know, you kind of go, "Huh, I wonder what's going on there." You know, a very wealthy district that has no kids uh, achieving. Uh, you know, what's going on there? Um, I I never bothered to look into that, but um, the because the what uh, attracted me, what what I was interested in was. Um, students from low-income backgrounds who are high achieving so how did that work and he does a number of different analyses um uh it's not just that straight thing of third through eighth grade achievement uh plotted against socioeconomics he does student growth from third through eighth grade he does um he 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 did an analysis for me i'm 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 presuming he did it for, for another reason, but he sent it to me, of districts where African-American students were learning at a g- faster rate from third through eighth grade than the white students in the district. Um, just as, you know, that's interesting, you know, what are they doing? And um, I identified a s- set of districts that were really interesting to me, uh, outlier districts, um, but then I had to de- dig deep into their state report cards because, um, you know, his his data has to be supplemented with more recent data. He's never absolutely up to date. He, tr- I mean, he's trying and he he does update as 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 he can, but um, you know, you always have to. I I always had to supplement supplement with more recent um, uh, test score data from more recent years, really looking into the demographics, really looking into, you know, what the, um, what the trajectory of those districts is uh, was, you know, was it on the way up, was it on the way down? So I ended up with a set of um, six districts, actually, and um, I made a podcast uh, about those six districts called Extraordinary Districts. And I went and, you know, I have a lot of audio of superintendents, principals, uh, some, a few school board members, some students, some parents, uh, a lot of teachers, and really tried to dig into what, um, uh, what those districts did to be different from their less successful peers. And then when the pandemic hit, I, I, I wrote a book. <laughs> I wrote this book.
0: <laughs> so what did they do? What did the successful districts do to be different from their peers? Can you choose one district and tell us the story of it and or identify some themes across some of the successful districts? Sure.
1: So um, one, of the, one of the first districts that I um, identified was a district I had actually been following for many years through its schools. So the the work I had been doing on schools uh, led me to Wells Elementary in Steubenville, Ohio. And so I had actually really wanted to do a district story of Steubenville for many years. But when his first scatterplot came out, that kind of gave me the the grounding um, to be able to say, yeah, uh, Steubenville needs to be looked at as a district, not just as a collection of schools. And um, his initial scatter plot showed third through eighth grade, and it was quite well above average. But when I asked him about Steubenville, he said, well, what's interesting about them is their third and fourth grade is really very close to the top of the country. And then they kind of drift down. You know, they, they don't hold on to that. Um, I mean, they're still high performing, but not at the top of the country. And so I went back to Steubenville. I had been there uh, several times, quite quite often. Um, I went back to Steubenville, and I sat in a meeting of the top administrators, the superintendent, the the you know the top district uh, uh, officials, plus the print plus many of the principals, plus some of the coaches, and you know they have uh, their curriculum person and so forth. And I said, that's what Sean Reardon had said. And I was curious what they would say and how they would react because a typical, a typical school administrator will get very defensive and say, well, you know, we're really top of the country and, uh, you know, our middle school is doing just fine. You know, I mean, they, they, they won't acknowledge that. But when I said, Sean Reardon says you're top of the country third and fourth grade, and then you kind of drop down in uh, the later the later grades. They all just nodded their heads and said, "Yeah, but not for long. We've got a plan. This is what we're going to do." So, I mean, they knew the data much better than Sean Reardon knew the data, and they were addressing it. And I just thought that was remarkable. This ability to be really clear about what their success is and how their success has had not translated yet into the middle school and and then they you know had a whole series of plans what i've noticed uh, so steubenville just to back up just a minute is a very depressed town it's actually a little less depressed than when i first went there in probably 2007 or so Um, there, then I was just really struck by how, um, this was a town that had been hollowed out. Uh, the, the steel mill on the, on the riverbank had closed. It was literally rusting. It, you know, it's, it's, it's how you name, uh, a region, the rust belt. I, uh, I have been told that people hate that term, so I'm not going to use it, but uh i i will say there was a rusting steel mill right on the riverbank um the whole town had the the city had been hollowed out it had lost population over many many years and the people left were really quite poor and the town itself just was depressed um a lot of a lot of uh, uh, abandoned buildings and so forth. So it's it's think of Youngstown only little. It's smaller than smaller than Youngstown, and um and yet, its elementary schools were at the top of the state. Um, and then its middle school was improving. Its high school actually uh, is also at the top of the state. Uh, it graduates just about all its students. It um, uh, it graduates them with college credit. Many, uh, I think about half of them graduate with college credit, and a, an increasing number are graduating with associate degrees. They have enormous... Uh, ambitions for their students, they want their students to interrupt the cycle of poverty. And so they have they they just are trying to provide as many opportunities for them as possible. So there is this um, belief in the students is core belief in the capacity of the students, belief in the capacity of teachers, and belief in the capacity of leaders. So everybody's being held accountable. For these uh, for their um, actions and for their um for their accomplishments but there's this enormous optimism about them now how do they organize themselves uh i kind of came up with a an aphorism about them which is programs plus culture and i, I don't know that that really captures everything but they do have a big belief in, in programs. Um, they will tell you it's not about a program, but they do believe that if you choose the right program, it will help you, uh, achieve your ambitions. And so at the elementary, and, uh, at the elementary level, they've used success for all for like 20 years, which is highly, it's a highly unusual. It's also, um, because uh, superintendents come in and get rid of success for all often, um, even if it's successful. Um, And the plan that they had when, uh, when I went out there, the plan to improve the middle school was that they were putting success for all into the middle school as well. They had, they had hoped that the success, of the success for all program would just kind of infiltrate the middle school and it hadn't. So they were putting it in as a program. And there was, I think there was a little grumbling among some of the middle school teachers, but by the time, you know, I went back, uh, they were, they seemed to be okay with it and they were, they were happy with it. It, it, it was feeding success. So they, they have, Program a program at the elementary and middle school level, and then they have uh, they had adopted high schools that work at the at the high school level, but both build on a lot of research. They require cycles of uh, of um, kind of examining the success or failure, uh, uh, through cycles of basically what is the scientific method. And that's another piece of what I observed that each of the districts used some, some of them called it the scientific method. And some of them just said, oh, well, we have these cycles of improvement or they, they called them different things, but it's essentially identifying a problem through da- through data and, um, observation researching that problem seeing it seeing how to address it putting in place some kind of way to address it and then studying whether it did address the problem or did it make it worse did it you know did it have no effect did it have a little effect but not enough so you have to tweak it you have to adjust it and then continuing through that cycle over and over again um that is was a common theme among all the districts, some kind of version of the scientific method.
2: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: So you mentioned a moment ago that you wrote this book during the pandemic, and in the book it says that you're working on it in the summer of 2020 or finalizing it at that time. So I'm wondering, as a person who follows this field really closely, who studied districts really in depth, what have been your reflections on observing districts through the pandemic, the racial reckoning and the culture war's backlash against the racial reckoning that have occurred since the time you wrapped the book up?
1: So how long do we have here? (laughs) That's a big question. Um, For one, I have stopped traveling. Um, So I, I have... I don't feel like I have as good a sense of all these districts as when I was traveling to them. I have talked with a bunch of the folks there, and during the pan during the first two years of the pandemic, I um, expanded my podcast. So extra- we uh, we called it "Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times" to talk with many of the people I had profiled in in the book to try and hear what they were doing during the pandemic. And they did a variety of different things. And, you know, these were highly functional districts, right? And schools and districts, I I expanded it to schools. Um, These were highly functional schools and districts. And what they did, what they did a variety of things, some of them went fully remote for a very long time. Some of them uh, did hybrid, some of them came back as you know as quickly as any of the districts um in in the country so they did a variety of things um some of them came back and then found they had to go remote again because uh of il- you know they just simply didn't have the staff uh who were not ill um so so these highly functional schools and districts met the pandemic in different ways. And there was no one way, but my observation at the very beginning was kids who were, who are in functional schools and districts will be okay. They might not be great We're in the middle of a pandemic, but they would be okay. Um, Kids who were in dysfunctional schools and districts probably wouldn't. And I, I have seen no reason to readjust that assessment. I think um, districts that were organized around teaching and learning, the kids in those districts were able to learn. The teachers were able to teach and the kids were able to learn. Maybe not as much as they would have learned uh, in school buildings, but they were learning. Kids in dysfunctional schools and districts, well, the teachers and the kids were kind of abandoned and they found it very, very difficult. So, um, you know, I think we see we see that there were drops in uh, academic achievement in terms of test scores. I hope we'll be able to recover. I think we should be able to recover. I think there is a political agenda in heightening the crisis atmosphere around this, instead of just kind of saying, okay, we've got, we've got some issues. Let's, let's move forward. Let's get the kids reading. Let's get the kids doing math. Uh, Instead, there's this, you know, oh, uh, schools fail. Schools all failed the kids and, Um, we have to abandon public schools. And I think that is exactly the wrong uh, conclusion to draw. Um, The conclusion to draw is that we need to strengthen our public schools and strengthen the bonds between teachers and students, not attenuate them even more. Did that answer your question?
0: Yes, thank you. What policies at a federal or state level would increase the number of effective districts?
1: So um, I'm not really a policy person. And um, uh, I mean, even though I worked at a policy shop for 18 years, (laughs) um, but I think there are some real obvious ones uh, that don't require being a policy person. And that is we need better systems of funding. Uh, We have districts where, uh, you know, $32,000 a year is spent on a kid, on an individual kid. We have districts where $9,000 is spent on an individual kid. And, you know, some of that is cost of living, but not all of it. Um, That is hugely inequitable. We need to have inac- we need to have equitable funding structures. Um, title one is inadequate to the task, it, um, so that's one thing. Um, I think it would be good. I haven't talked about this um, yet, but um, teachers need time away from students so that they can collaborate with their with their colleagues and think about what they're doing, learn about, learn the research, they need time. It shouldn't be Friday at two o'clock when they're exhausted. Um, It shouldn't be Saturday morning. You know, we need to embrace the idea that teachers need time. Principals need time as well. Um, But principals get some time. Usually if they're 12 month employees, they get time over the summer, whereas teachers do not. Um, and they need real real time to think about what it is kids need to learn, more or less when they need to learn it, how to assess whether they've learned it, and what to do if they haven't. You know, these are not complicated. Que- I mean, they are complicated questions, but um, it's not complicated to see that teachers need that time. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. Um, in front of kids all the time, and with you know, and putting together lesson plans at night—that um, is really unconscionable. So, I think as a nation, we should embrace that teachers need that time. That means a whole host of things for budgets and so forth. We need to have substitute teachers on staff, right? Um, and some of the districts I've profiled do that. Um, they have. Substitute teachers, uh, contract teachers, who are there maybe half a year, and they're there to fill in. They're there to cover classes. They t- they do the training with the teachers, so they're fully trained. They they understand the culture of the school. They f- there there is no break in uh, instruction, and teachers can go visit other classrooms. They can learn from other their colleagues and so on and so forth. I mean, they need. I'm sorry, I, I kind of started ranting there, but <laughs> but that would be a good policy. <laughs> and it goes along with the budget. You know, they need more they, they need more money. they need uh, redundancies. In space, uh, we build in re- redundancies. In schools, if a teacher is sick, sometimes the principal has to cover that class. that's that's not sufficient redundancy. Right. That's that's just not sufficient. We need more redundancy so that they can function in, in better ways.
0: So I acknowledge that this next question is beyond the scope of the research that you reported for your book, but I am curious what you feel one should do as a teacher or a parent or a student who wants to be part of a district that succeeds but you're not, what can ordinary citizens do to bring about more success in their local districts?
1: So it's a good question, and it's a hard question to answer because individuals have very little power over this, right? Um, but we do have a political uh, avenue, and that is to elect better school board members. And this is not a knock on school board members, but they tend not to know a whole lot about schools and education. I mean, they're public spirited. They bring their own expertise, which is often very valuable. They're business people or the retired teachers sometimes that, you know, or principals uh, occasionally. Um, But they tend not to understand how schools and education work. So they're often manipulated by um, the superintendent, who can be good or bad, right? Like you know that that they're very variable. Uh, we have, I would say, a weak superintendent core uh, as a whole. That's not a knock on any individual superintendent, but um, I think we have to elect better. I, for for the most part, people don't pay much attention to school boards. And I think we're seeing the effect of that as um, as it becomes very easy, as, as, as we see extremists are able to get elected to school boards, because, you know, most people don't really pay that much attention. Um, and it's not that they have the support of the majority. It's that I didn't know they were going to ban books, right? Like, I, I didn't. I didn't mean that. Uh, but if you if you work the polls, if you're somebody who works the polls and you're working the poll on Election Day and people are going through the, you know, the the signs and they don't want to hear from, uh, you know, who you who you're supporting for your uh, Congress or president, because they've already decided that you can stop them cold by saying, do you know who you're voting for for school board? Because they stop and they go, no, who should I vote for? Now, that's a problem. We have permitted that. But I think that's an avenue for ordinary people to try and affect the functionality of their districts is let's let's get some school board members who really understand um, how school school boards should operate and how they can help build more functional districts that believe in the capacity of children to learn and aren't distracted by, oh, you know, these kids, poor kids, they don't get the support of their families. They don't, you know, all the, all the excuses that we hear, let's keep the focus on kids can learn. What do we need as adults to do to help them? Did that answer your question?
0: Yes, thank you. So, before I ask our final question, is there anything else that you want to say about this book or the topic of how
1: districts succeed? No. Can I tell you what I'm doing these days? But and you can cut this out because it's not a. It's not about the book. But I, I will tell you that when I retired from EdTrust last spring, I um, I thought about this question of what can ordinary people do, <laughs> and. Um, I realized that school board candidates who want to stand up to extremists have very little support. There is very little information for them about both how schools operate and about how to actually run. And so I started an organization called Democracy in Education. It has a website, www.assistdemocracy.org. And it... uh, you know, is providing that information for school board candidates. So, so I actually thought about <laughs> this, is, this is what I think about now. I, uh, to be totally honest, I never paid much attention to the effect of school boards on districts. It wasn't something that really was on my radar because I don't know that they have a huge effect. They should, but I don't know that they do. They can have a bad effect. I don't know that they tend to have a good effect. So that's, that's, anyway, you can cut this out if, if you decide it's not appropriate for you.
0: No, I think we'll keep it in because the last question was, What are you working on now? And so I think that's a fantastic resource for our listeners to have some connections to some materials that they can build on the learning from the book. Um, is there anything else that you're working on now or that you want to share?
1: Um, that's the main thing. www.assistdemocracy.org. Um, you can't, if you, if you were to Google democracy and education, all you'd find is the John Dewey book. You, you won't find it. I, I did not search engine optimize this. I don't know how to do that. So, but we have, Briefs on um, different topics, from reading instruction to transgender kids, we have uh, and and critical race theory. We have um, podcasts on how to run for a school board and on uh, communities that have successfully uh, uh, mm, resisted extremist school boards. Um, a news archive. You know, we've got different things. We're, we're growing. And if, if there's someone out there thinking of running for school board or running or supporting a school board candidate, come on over. We've got some information and a community for you.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that resource. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been really helpful.
1: Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it.